Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rosil and my guest today is Josh Eberham. Josh is the founder and CEO of Profit XAI. He is a former NBA player agent with Rosenhaus Sports Representation and is a former pro hockey player. Josh, uh, it's really, really interesting what he's working on and how he's working on. It's really going to disrupt the agency business, but in a positive way. It's going to help agents athletes, players, and I think it will absolutely help front offices as well. So I think it's really cool the way he's going about it and what he's doing. And I am very excited to see what ProfitX AI looks like in the future. So please enjoy this episode with Josh Eberham. Today's special guest, I have Josh Eberham, founder and CEO of Profit XAI, former NBA player agent at Rosenhaus Sports Representation, former professional hockey player out in Korea. Josh, how's it going today, man? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Pleasure's all mine, man. It's a good day to be alive. We're having some fun, as we were talking about before. A lot of people willing and able to do these interviews now, so I've been having a lot of fun. So hopefully uh, you've been utilizing your time too. But the first question I have for everybody is... Why do you love sports so much? Man, I've, from my early days growing up in in a small town, Greenville, Texas, sports has been, you know, integrated into my veins. Um, You know, even just starting out recreationally with my friends, you know, we had a big, we had a big group of uh, probably 12 to 15, you know, boys there were within my age range. And we just, you know, we had a lot of land to run around in and, and we found, <laughs> we found spots to, to cause a little bit of mayhem. And, and um, we utilized it, you know, we, we played baseball, football, I mean, basketball, anything you could think of. We were just running around trying to, trying to have some fun and break a sweat. So it's, it's definitely, been part of my veins and then obviously um getting introduced to um hockey at a at a younger age you know texas not being the the normal hotbed for for ice hockey um was definitely a a, a curve for me just in terms of you know limited resources and access to, to ice rinks and things like that so i had to get a little creative with with you know my my training methods and and things like that but i definitely knew that sports was going to be a, a big part of my, my life going forward from, from a young age. And it's really, you know, everybody kind of has an answer similar to that. Everyone has a different take on it. But again, like yours was, you know, playing hockey in Texas. And I, I know the story behind it, so I'm excited to get to there in a second. But yeah. I just think it's really important, you know, growing up, being competitive, playing. It's always been something that, you know, even though I knew at a very young age, you know, 12, 13, I wasn't going pro. Uh, you know, I saw my mom's build and my dad's build. I was like, I don't think I'm going to turn out much bigger than either of them. And if I didn't, uh, there really wasn't too much of a shot. But, uh, you know, it was just fun to play, fun to be around. And then you start watching it, you start getting attached to the players, the names, the teams, and just snowballs from there, which I think is really cool. So as you said, you, you start, you got into ho- ice hockey in Texas. Uh, I know you, again, you told me that the story, your neighbors were Canadian. 
So yeah. that kind of led to you getting involved in the sport. I mean, tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you got involved to the point where you played professionally in Korea. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> my uh, my they were actually my my dad's uh, one of my dad's coworkers had basically they'd moved to Greenville, Texas at the same time. And so they, they grew like a friendship. And, and when they both decided they wanted to build houses, they were like, Hey, we both have, you know, relatively big families. Let's put them together and, and see what kind of madness, you know, it, it creates. So they, they, we, we built houses basically next to each other. Um, they had a, they had a family of, of eight, eight, eight total, six boys, um, ranging from, uh, you know, a uh, senior in high school to uh, I think the youngest one was a fourth grader when I was a, a freshman in, in high school. So a lot of, a lot of competitive opportunities to go out there. Our, our driveways were combined. So we just, you know, we had big hockey games in our, in our driveways and, and we moved them out to the streets as they got bigger and everyone started to kind of uh, join in on the, on the action. Um, but obviously as, as, we started to play more and more. I, I started to feel like, you know, I was, I was obviously a step ahead of, of my competition. So I obviously wanted to look at, at going against um, a better level of competition. So, you know, we, my friend and I um, basically decided, Hey, we're going to look into playing hockey in Dallas. Luckily at the time, the Dallas stars were just starting to integrate themselves into the city and have some success at the time. So, there were limited rinks. We played, we played in a rink in a, in a suburb of Dallas called Richardson, Texas. And, and that's mainly where I spent most of my youth hockey career along with playing on, on travel teams um, in, in local, you know, local competition uh, tournaments and, and uh, more regional uh, tournaments as well. So um, after, after, uh, you know, when I was about 17 years old, I got an opportunity to, to go play uh, junior hockey up in, in Seattle, Washington. So um, I, I basically tried to get my, my classwork under order. My, my parents were both very um, adamant about getting your education and, and seeing that through. So I didn't want to skip any ends because I knew the education would come in handy at some point. I also knew if I didn't have the, all of the tools to, to make it to the highest level. So, but as the opportunities started to, to open themselves up, I, you know, I wanted to at least pursue those opportunities and, and see, see what came about of it. So, well, so quick question, how angry were your Canadian friends that you got the opportunity to go play uh, juniors in Seattle? Yeah, they, you know, they were, they were actually one of, they were like my biggest supporters, believe it or not. Oh, like, I'm sure they were supporting you, of course, but deep down inside, man, they must have been like, are you kidding? This kid from Texas, we taught him everything he knows and he's, yeah. he's played. That's kind of funny, right? Yeah, well, I, I started out as a, as a goalie originally and I thought, I thought that's where, I thought that's where I was going to make my, make my, uh, my my path but it, i quickly turned it when i got to the the higher level competition you know everything was faster everything everyone was you know a little bit more advanced so i i knew that i had some you know some skill set on the offensive side and and uh i just committed myself to to go in that route but yeah 
I mean, yeah, definitely my, my closest friend out of the family was actually in my graduating class and he was actually probably the most talented out of them all. And, and, uh, we were just totally uh, polar opposites. He wanted to be a brain surgeon and, and I wanted to be a, you know, a hockey player or an agent or something along that line. So I, they, they were definitely happy for me and, and, uh, they, they showed nothing but a lot of support throughout, throughout my, uh, my youth. Career. That's awesome. Just yeah. the irony of that. It's just, I, know. <laughs> I love that. It's just too, too funny. So as you said, and, and during that time, that was like the Mike Madonna, Brett Hole. Was that, was it those? Yeah. 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 Great, great hockey, great hockey. Mike Madonna. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to meet him a couple of times. Super nice guy. Um, and definitely, I think, I think a lot of the, the, the pro, the pro guys in that, in that area definitely knew that it was a challenge mm-hmm. at least at that time to, to really get a, a, a foot up on mm-hmm. everyone else, especially in terms of, you know, the, the Canadian and the Northeast and, and other areas that mm-hmm. are obviously yeah. more, more advanced. Of course. And that makes sense. Just kind of cool. I remember what was it? It was that triple overtime game against Buffalo. If I'm not mistaken, they had in one of the Stanley cups, that game was yeah. insane, man. That was insane. Yeah. I'm super young. I, I was super young. My mom stayed up and was screaming for it, but uh, I don't remember too much about it. I just remember Dallas won. I think was that a clincher? I can't remember if that was a clincher. It was a clincher. It was a it was a disputed goal due to the due to the puck being in the crease, and there's a little bit of controversy. But I, I'm I'm sticking with my boys. We we won the cup. So it happened exactly. What do you, you can't go back and rewrite history now. <laughs> it is, but yeah, I remember that one. That was that hockey man. It, hockey playoffs that's that's what i think next to march madness that's what i'm gonna miss the most about this because baseball is gonna come back eventually it might be weird you know opening day okay we're gonna miss it but there'll just be another one if i miss the stanley cup playoffs man that's easily one of my favorite times in sports just to see these dudes go bananas and um, yeah that is what it is let's let's not go too too far down that route i don't want to be depressing i want to spread positivity in your story a little bit so you grow up in texas you play hockey you get the opportunity to go play in seattle um you then get the opportunity to go to school at Washington state, obviously same state as Seattle. How far away is Washington state? Washington's located in Seattle, correct? Yeah. Yeah. University, university of Washington is in the, in the heart of downtown Seattle. Mm -hmm. Um, And Washington state is actually on the opposite side of the state on the East Southeastern corner of of state of Washington. And it's about five miles away from the border of uh, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And, okay. the, and the university of idaho as well so were you playing hockey there as well i no. so they have a they have a rule if they have the acha which is the the club level um program that they have there they they don't allow any junior hockey players um to to play on on that on that level now there's the the competitiveness um of the league has evolved obviously but at that time, it was we had probably a couple of guys that were we just we were basically their practice squad, mm-hmm. um, and so we just skated around with them and tried to help them and and coach them and and try to get them. But definitely, the the talent level wasn't wasn't far off as as a lot of people might might think. Okay, so where where were you getting your I guess outside of like was the practices and hanging out with that team kind of the only I guess. Com- competitive nature or the only playing time you were getting because in a couple years you then go get your NBA and career and play professionally so what happened in that time I assume you didn't just stop playing the sport right no I I didn't stop it you know just growing up and and I I like to I like to stay in shape and and be active so 
I just figured, you know, it was, it was better than running on a treadmill or doing Stairmaster, you know, just stay in shape. And, and, uh, you know, I had, I had some good experience under my belt and, and if an opportunity, you know, presented itself, that's, that's kind of what my, I was mentally preparing for. And obviously, as I'm sure everyone knows, it's, it's, uh, you know, opportunity knocks and, and if you decide to take it and, and see what happens from there. I love it. And that's always very important. I completely agree. Just, just answer the door, man. Maybe you don't like it, but just at least answer see what's going on. Uh, yeah. Opportunities knocking for a reason. I think that part's very important. So you then, so after your time at Washington state, you then go get, you go to Korea. So was it, were you going to Korea to play hockey or were you going to Korea to get your MBA study abroad and Hey, the opportunity arose. How did that kind of shake out? Yeah. You know what? I was, I was actually right before I, I got the offer to play in Korea. I, I was actually looking at, at graduate school because I knew that I, I had worked at Philips Sonicare as a software, software engineer for about probably three months right after I graduated. And I immediately knew that it wasn't, it wasn't something that, that was, uh, you know, up my alley. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously my parents are both, my, my basically everyone in my family they're all engineers so it's it's uh it was kind of expected from from the, that aspect but it, it was never in my veins I knew I wanted to be on the the business side of things and I knew I had certain skill sets that would that would translate well to that but um so I was looking at I was looking at business programs to basically enroll at and then the opportunity came and it happened pretty quickly and within a span of probably two weeks or so. So I had to do a lot of reshuffling in terms of like, okay, well, I, I still like the idea of having the opportunity to travel abroad and still make a living playing the thing, the sport that I love all, while also getting an education and, and just merging all of those things, you know, the, the ability to travel and see different cultures and, and just, you know, really kind of see the world from a, a bigger, a bigger lens is so that really attracted to me. Definitely. I, I, I worked really hard to really try to make it work in terms of, okay, making the educational aspect of it where I worked out, I worked out a, a scenario where I could do the online classes during the season and and then during the off season when i had time off to travel back to the states i could do you know actual classes at at the campus so they were really great and really flexible with me and and they knew it was a it was a very unique situation and and i'm definitely grateful for it because i would have you know obviously lost two years mm -hmm. uh you know if if i hadn't come back now obviously i don't think the 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 mba you know, matters as much as I it used to, but I still, from learning and, and understanding certain situations, how to negotiate and boosting my confidence in, in the business side of it, it was definitely very beneficial for me. And I think it's just such a cool opportunity. I mean, so few people get paid to play the sport they love, right? Like you have to play so, so long and then be good enough. I don't even care where you're playing. You still have to be good enough to get that opportunity. And you did. And I mean, it's, just got to be cool to say I was a professional hockey player for a little while. Don't care where it was. You still had the opportunity. Again, you got paid to play the sport you loved since you were 10, 11 years old, whatever it was. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't. I mean, it, just taking the whole experience into, into uh, you know, account, it, it was just really probably pr the best 
three years for my individual growth, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to get away from the shadow of my family and, and really just do something that I wanted to do and learn more about myself and, and see different cultures. I think it gave me more insight how to work with people um, and, and be a better teammate with, you know, obviously my new foreign uh, club that I was signing on with. And, and it was just a, a really met a lot of great people, you know, from different parts of the world. So it was just a, a really uh wonderful opportunity mm-hmm. and, and I cherish it. Very yeah, man. Much. And I'm glad you enjoyed it because there's nothing like it. Um, not that I would know. I kind of just dreamed about it once and I thought it was great, <laughs> but so after your time uh, in Korea, playing hockey, getting your MBA, you know, figuring all that out, as you said, over a couple span of three years, coming back to the States, what, like where along the way, I'm assuming it was somewhere in Korea, but where along the way did the fire get lit that you wanted to become a player agent? And, and start to help athletes understand, navigate the spaces and help them, you know, with their contracts, with their marketing. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to, you know, as you said, you're, all your family members are engineers and, you know, you were coming from an IT kind of background, like where along the way were you like, this sounds like what I should be doing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think there were certain, certain, you know, aspects that you see of the job in, in television and film and, and, I think, you know, obviously Jerry Maguire, I think was one of my, um, one of my key moments where I kind of was like, Hey, like, you know, I really do care about the, the players because I was a player and, and I have a, you know, I have the background and, and I do have the technical side of it where I can crunch the data and I'm very analytical and I can examine things and, and make risk assessments based off of certain data that's in front of you. But I also have the, I feel like I bring to the table a, a creative, unique, outside of the box thinking perspective where, you know, in, in situations where problems need to be solved, which um, I quickly learned in the agency businesses quite often, um, it, it, it was definitely an advantage to me. I think, uh, you know, going along the route when I came back to the States, I had, I had a high school friend that was, uh, that played for the SMU uh, football, Mustang football team. And he was a very close friend of mine. We were both uh, kind of, he was great at soccer and, and he was relatively large for a 14 year old. <laughs> so, um, he, he obviously got a lot of interest from, from football, football colleges and, and, uh, and I, I monitored his, his career, you know, going through college. He was, he was about two or three years younger than me, but I always kept tabs on him and, and checked in with him. And he ended up getting drafted by the, the uh, New England Patriots in the uh, fourth round. Um, and so he actually got cut like right during training camp, which I thought was a little bizarre. And, and so I started talking to him and I just saw how his, his career just kind of, you know, it started off so promising and within the span of, you know, three or four months, it was just starting to kind of started to crumble. And I asked him, I was like, you know, what's going on here? Like why you, you had a lot of guaranteed money put in your contract for a fourth round pick and, and the Patriots seemed like a great fit for you. And, and it was just, there was, there was some, you know, he didn't go into the details of it, but there was some kind of dynamic that I felt was, 
that was missing either through communication or just presenting, you know, the right information for, for my friend to make the best decision possible. And, and I kind of, I kind of saw that. Um, and I, I kind of triggered a thought in my head. Well, I understand both sides of it. And, you know, the key part in this is presenting the information, the best information for the clients to make the decision. That's, that's your, essentially your job as an agent. You know, you don't, you don't pressure them one way, you don't pressure them another way. And uh, ultimately it's their decision. So I, I definitely saw an opportunity to, to put that into motion. Um, my dad actually ended up, uh, getting sick right when I moved back. So I moved to, I moved back to Dallas to, um, you know, just help him through his, his, you know, his, uh, his treatment and recovery process, you know, and, and I, I felt like that was more important at the time than, than jumpstarting anything. And, uh, so I did that and I, I spent in, I spent about a year and a half in Dallas, just making sure everything was good to go, but also, kind of planning and methodically getting information that I needed in order to, to have the plan ready to execute as soon as I'm ready to, you know, mentally and physically ready to, to get it rolling. And when, when did you, I guess, what was that? What were those first few clients like, or what were those first few conversations like just kind of reaching out to people being like, Hey, I'm an Asian now you need some help. Like how did those conversations go, especially in the beginning coming from a, you know, I know you then go and, and, and as I said before, you were with Drew Rodinson house, but at first I know you said you kind of wanted to do this thing on your own. So what were those initial conversations like reaching out to players and being just like, Hey, again, I'm putting my toe in this, you know, I'm trying to, trying to come in the water cannonball in and, and help in any way. Like, what did you do? How did you do? And how'd you go find those first few potential clients? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I've always had this mentality where it's just, you got to outwork everyone and, and especially being, you know, starting out right when I got certified, I knew that, okay, I need to hit the, hit the ground running. I've been planning for all of this and even, even all of the preparation, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it helps you, but it doesn't really prepare mm -hmm. you for the reality of, of how volatile and, and cutthroat this industry is. So, you know, I, I really just, you know, I was, I was super, you know, aggressive in terms of my recruiting efforts and obviously pitching a different angle than trying to be different than what the other agents are going to say, because, you know, when my experiences with agents were everything's cookie cutter, everything's, you know, they don't cater, they don't cater the services to the client, which is what the, the agent should in reality be doing. And, and so I really felt like, uh, I needed to understand each client differently and really tailor the plan exactly for that individual client. So with, with my very first client, which was a highly rated international prospect from uh, Real Madrid, you know, I, I've, I got in touch with him and I said, listen, I know, I know you have a European agent, but I'm a, I'm an NBA agent and you're in a very good position to, you know, with the right agent, put you on, put you in a platform to, to be successful. So he was definitely interested and he wanted to hear more. And, and I said, okay, I'm, I'll be on the next flight to Madrid. And he was like, seriously? I was like, yeah, I'll see you in 24 hours. 
And so I flew to Madrid the next day and uh, met with them for the next three days. We spent time, we hung out, just tried to build a relationship with it and really try to figure out, you know, what he wants out of this, this partnership. You know, he, he's meeting with me for a reason as well. And I need to understand what that is. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, he, he was a super humble kid and, and, you know, from Dakar, Senegal and, and, uh, just really humble guy with the amount of success that he had. And, and I think he wanted to really just help the people around him. And so, you know, I, after understanding those things, I, I came up with a plan. I said, Wally, let's, let's go to the United States. Let's get you into the G league and we're going to play your, your draft year in front of all 30 NBA teams. And, and uh, he was like, I love it. Let's, let's do it. And, it, you know, so I think, I think there was a lot of things that went into the early success and really, but you, you really got to sell yourself. Like it's, you know, because every agent's going to come back at you and say, well, this guy doesn't have this experience and this guy doesn't have this experience and he doesn't know how to get you onto a team or set up a workout. And probably some of those things were true, but my mentality was I'd rather learn on the go and make a couple of hiccups along the way and try to minimize those mistakes to, to minor ones and, and just learn on the go. Because honestly, really no one in the beginning was giving me an opportunity to kind of learn the business from, from where I probably should have mm -hmm. been learning from. And, and I just, I just kind of said, all right, well, I'll just do it myself. Kind of like what I've been doing my entire life. Exactly. You want to do it. I mean, no one's going to give you the shot. Just, just do it then. Right. Like it's, it's kind of like cliche, you know, when we think about Nike, just do it. But at the same time, it is true. If, if you're, if that's something you truly want to do, you think you can do it, you think you're capable of it and no one's giving you a shot, then you kind of the only other option is yourself. Um, and you clearly did that. You flew to Madrid just to meet with the guy because he said, yeah, sure. I'll chat. Um, and you know, I think that that's like a huge amount of uh, self-awareness involved in all of it, but also just the fact that, um, I think it's incredible that you're able to go ahead and do something like that. I think it's, you know, just the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Cojones. Is that a good way to say it? Uh, the balls <laughs> to do it. I mean, at that point, it's pretty impressive. And so, you know, obviously you went about, you learned and you did a lot of stuff. You had, you did eventually end up joining a bigger sports agency on the small side. Cause it was the NBA and you guys were just building. So where along the lines, again, you know, of building your own thing, doing your own thing. Did you realize like, all right, I've learned, now I have the capabilities, I have the knowledge, I have the desire. How do I then go and get one of these coveted jobs or these spots where, again, you can have a little bit more protection, you have a little bit more resources and someone backing you rather than just kind of building out your own thing right from the get-go? Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously that was, that was what everyone was telling me from the beginning is that you need to start from, from the agency side of it and, and learn the business and then the natural trajectory is agents start to kind of just break off and do their own thing once they've established, you know, themselves in the industry and whatnot and have some, some accolades and, and experience under their belt. Um, for me, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty easy in terms of, and unlucky. And, um, but basically what kind of what happened is uh, I had signed another client, Antonius Cleveland, at the time, uh, right after the college basketball season had ended. And so I was going into the, the pre-draft process pretty confident. You know, I had two legitimate NBA prospects um, signed, signed to my agency. And, and I was 
um, just about, I was actually at the final four slam dunk competition for Antonius. He was a participant in it and he breaks his middle finger two days before the, the Portsmouth, uh, invitational tournament which is basically like a a top tier senior uh college prospect tournament mm -hmm. for for nba executives so i fly to portsmouth after he has antonius has a surgery and the literally the day i spend that day setting up workouts for antonius basically giving them the injury updates and letting them know when his availability is going to be and and he calls me that evening and and terminates terminates our agreement um, so that happened pretty unexpectedly and that was definitely, a uh, a heartbreaker for me and I put a lot of time into it and, and I felt like I had identified a, a player that was really not, uh, hyped up a lot in terms of scouts and, and analysts, but the feedback that I was getting from teams was, oh yeah, he's. He's, he's a great pickup for you. Definitely going to be on the radar. And, and uh, so that was definitely a blow for me. And then pretty much shortly after, about a week later, Wally, my, my client that was playing in the G League, uh, hurts his knee and basically is out of commission for the entire pre-draft process. And we had to actually send him back to, to get medical attention for, for his knee um, due to, due to a lot of contract, mm -hmm. uh, complications with, with the G league club. But, um, but yeah, so that was, that was kind of my wake up call. You know, I was, um, you know, in a span of probably seven days, I had my, my company was kind of flipped upside down and, and, uh, and I just kind of made the decision. I, I took like a month off and just kind of really thought about if I wanted to be an agent anymore and, if I was going to do it, you know, the process that it was going to take to put yourself in front of all of these, these agents. And, and it was going to be a lot of work because I was going to have to be persistent and, and, and annoying and, and really sell myself. So, you know, I, I made the decision, you know, I, I, I spoke with my family and I just basically came up with the conclusion. If I can't do it with the bigger agency, I shouldn't be an agent. <laughs> you know, it's pretty simple. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, that summer, which was a, definitely a good time to actually start looking right after the draft, I, I met with a lot of the top agencies, um, Andy Miller Sports, Rock Nation, uh, ISE, and uh, I think CAA, and Excel. And no, there wasn't an opportunity for me, you know, it was, it was definitely um, – it felt similar to when I was originally starting in terms of, you know, I didn't have a lot of the clients that I had were not really assets for me. So, um, at that time. And, uh, so, you know, it wasn't really an attractive offer aside from the fact that, Hey, if you give me this platform and you give me the resources, I will produce for you. And, mm -hmm. and I didn't, I, you know, it just, the opportunity never came about and, and I was starting to kind of just think about, you know, hanging it up and, and looking at something different. And, and I actually got in touch with a, a former recruits parent that I was recruiting the previous year. And he puts me in touch with the new head of basketball operations for Rosenhaus sports. Um, so I, I called, I called, you know, I actually emailed drew probably 22 times, I think 
<laughs> Probably an I think, but 22 seems very specific. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to assume that number is pretty spot on. Yeah, it's, it's pretty spot on. And I think I emailed the, the brother, Jason, probably another nine or 10 times. Uh, and finally, they, they were like, enough, man, let's just talk. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely had it in with the director of basketball operations, the, the parent that had put me in touch with them, you know, obviously thought very highly of me and thought that we would work really well together. So I flew to I flew to summer league in Las Vegas where he was based out of. I met with him for three or four days and uh, we worked out a we worked out in a, a contract to, to come on board and and get the ball rolling. I love it, man. And hey, yeah, you, you I mean, it's. It was seems quick that you were considering getting out of the game, but I've never been in the game, so I can't really comment on what that's like because I can honestly not even imagine what it is like. And that's one thing. Everybody watches Jerry Maguire, and they want to do that, and then they find out exactly how that is and what it is. And I think that part's very important, but I'm glad you stuck with it because, I mean, you you did some pretty cool stuff with the Rosenhaus agency. I mean, what – I know you worked with Montrez Harrell a little bit, right? Like, so – like that was kind of the iteration or that was the first part, as you said, of their basketball operations. Like, what was that like again, kind of going from your own thing to now again, kind of just going to build something, but now you have a little bit, you know, people around, you have a team, you have resources, how much, I guess, easier for lack of a better term, was that kind of with at least a little bit of help around you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it was definitely, it made my job easier. Uh, It was, there was no, there was no, cuts around it. Um, I mean, we, we signed probably, you know, right, right when I got uh, the contract and, and was onboarded, you know, I hit the ground running. I knew exactly what targets, you know, we wanted to kind of focus on um, for the time being. And, and we hit the ground running. We signed Diamond Stone probably two months after Maryland. Uh, yep. Yeah. From Maryland. And, um, and then we obviously turned our attention to the recruiting side of it for college basketball. And, and we, we knew it was a pivotal, you know, because we were kind of in the same spot, really. We didn't have, we didn't have any, you know, clients or recognition and all of our, all of our uh, brand power is in football. So we, you know, we were essentially creating a new, a new division from the ground up. And, but we just had more artillery behind us. And it was, it was definitely easier, you know, the, the drew drew being involved, the marketing side of it. Um, it definitely opened up doors a lot easier for us. And, and we started to, you know, I think, I think the, the Rosenhaus name definitely opened the doors for us. And I think we were so t- determined to prove that we could do this um, and do it the right way that I think, you know, it was a combination of both where we just went in there. We knew how we were going to execute it. We took both of our, Bobby and I had great, you know, synergy in terms of working together and understanding our strengths and weaknesses and, and really just playing off that. And, and, uh, and I think the, you know, the results speak for themselves. Uh, you know, we signed uh, Diamond Stone um, initially, and then we ended up signing, uh, Anthony Simons out of IMG Academy um, for that upcoming draft class. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's incredible, man. I, mean, I think it's 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 pretty darn cool what you're capable of doing um, and how long you've been able to do it for. So then, while at Rosenhaus, while while there, I mean, again, you you, you work with players like Montrez Harrell. There's a couple others that came along. When did you realize, like, all right, this agency stuff was fun, but I think there's a better way of doing it. 
yeah, I mean, you know, the, what a lot of people don't realize is that the, you know, agents, you know, standard typical agents that, that have success, they're, they're everywhere, you know, and, and that's a hard thing to do, you know, if, you know, if you don't have a time machine or, or, a, uh, you know, a, something that can get you into multiple places because, you know, the, you're working long extended work weeks, you're traveling across the, the United States, meeting with families, staying in hotels. And so that, that process of it, you know, it starts to take a toll on you and, and, and on top of that, everything's so competitive and there's a limited number of guys in order to, to sign on to your agency. And there's so many agents out there. So I think it was a, a combination of a lot of things that just kind of started to, to physically take its toll on me. But I think the biggest thing was just the, the, broken system of of the the data being being made available to everyone and so when i when i went into different types of situations you know it was really just taking bits and pieces of data and taking bits and pieces of data from different sources and and really trying to compile them together and then creating a solution for it and then sending it back to the teams to do the negotiations or whatever uh, marketing companies or things like that to really justify, you know, this is, this is what the player is, is uh, you know, what the player wants, what the player's worth. And, and we need to find, you know, that's our job, right? Like we're mm -hmm. supposed to, to maximize their full financial um, uh, capabilities. So, um, so I, I started to definitely think about the uh, excessive, uh, tedious work that I was doing. And I think that that ultimately kind of led to me to say, all right, um, I love, I love being an agent, but I feel like I can help players in a different way and understand from our, you know, the athletes perspective, what the true indicators are going to be in, you know, maximizing your full, you know, financial potential. And that's kind of where ProfitX AI comes in, correct? And that's kind of where you've been able to build the system. So tell us a little bit about what it is and I guess how, I mean, you kind of just gave us the behind the scenes on why you created it, but I'm sure it's a lot more, diff it's a lot easier said than done, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so we've, we've been in, so I left, I, I left Rosenhaus uh, last uh, last about mid June of last year, and so I spent. Actually, I, I apologize. Could you tell us the story about Montrez Harrell and his contract? Like, I don't know how specific you can get, but I think yeah, that's yeah. a really great lead in. When you told me that before, that's a great lead in into saying like, okay, and now this is how I can do it. So if you don't mind, yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so yeah, basically, kind of what happened, uh, the kind of the the jump starter that kind of really just sparked everything was we were, you know, we were about to, we had just signed Montrez Harrell um, and he was getting ready to go into kind of, you know, restricted free agency essentially. And so restricted free agency, for those of you who don't know, is basically the team basically has the right of first refusal if they issue a, a qualifying offer to the player. So the player doesn't have to sign the qualifying offer unless the contract uh, negotiations break down and 
and it, that's like worst case scenario essentially um, because it doesn't provide you any security. It's a one year deal and, and it's, it spikes up your salary quite a bit, but um, you know, obviously injuries and other things can, can, um, can happen and mm-hmm. can risk that. But so we went into, we went into restricted free agency um, and he would, Trez was coming off a, a, a rookie, rookie minimum contract. He was making $1.56 million, I believe, on his last year of his deal. And the Clippers had issued a qualifying offer. And so we basically went in, um, we came up with a number where we thought, you know, I basically compiled all of the data statistics on Trez's performance and, and tried to really not focus on what he had done before because those stats were not really pertinent to how the Clippers were maximizing his, his performance. So I tried to paint it in a picture where the Clippers could understand, Hey, if you play him this amount of minutes in this type of system with these types of players around him, this is the production you're going to get. And as a result of that projection, you know, that prediction and projection, this is what you need to pay him to match that production that we anticipate happening. And that production doesn't happen without the team and without the player buying into both sides. So what's got to give, right? The player's got to be happy with the contract amount that he's given and the team has to be able financially to put to basically we call it a bridge contract, right? So it basically gives the player an opportunity for a couple of years to really show you know, uh, it's a, it's a breakout party, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's a breakout contract. And, and if he breaks out, then you're going to get paid. And, and if you don't, then, you know, you're going to stay around that, that, that average salary that you're probably making right now. Um, so I really tried to, you know, paint the picture with the Clippers and just say, listen, this is what he's going to do. He's the fourth most efficient player in the league when he plays and you can't deny that. And so we went back and forth with negotiations, Drew and I, Bobby, and we started out at $8 million, I believe. And we ended up going back and forth quite a bit. And more documents, more reports were being sent throughout the process. And we ended up on a, on a $6 million contract, which, you know, it, it, was, it was a win for both sides. And... The problem with it was, which is kind of leading into Profit X, was Trez actually ended up performing the way that we had projected he was going to perform that year, so the following year. So we actually have agents coming back and now trying to say, why did your agent negotiate a, you know, mm-hmm. a not so great deal for you? And and uh, you know that that. Uh, that was tough because, you know, you know, you think you're doing a good job and you're making your client happy and, and doing all of these things. And, and still you're, you're still getting battered and, and uh, you know, probably uh, you know, just not looked at in a good manner and probably mm-hmm. affecting the, the other aspects of your, of your agency division and things like that. So um, I really wanted just to kind of try to fix that system. I, I kind of took all of the, the artillery that I needed from that. And, and then I obviously needed, it obviously needed a lot of fine tuning and reforming and, and really breaking down the metrics that go into, you know, what the development and the trajectory of the uh, athlete performance is and mm-hmm. how that translates to 
uh, financial success. And then obviously from the team perspective, understanding the, the athletes uh, development and areas that they can maximize in order to get the most out of the player. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's, again, just the way I, I really like that story because you're right. Like, you know, you guys did a great job in painting that picture of what he would perform as the Clippers obviously have to come back and say, well, he hasn't yet. So that deal ends up looking very good now for the Clippers. Now you talk to anybody, it's in a team friendly deal. When in reality, it was actually, you guys got more than the team was willing to give initially. So I think it's just a great way to look at how you were able to come up, not just come up with the idea for the product and and what the service is, but a real life example of how this will be able to work in the future. So obviously you did this with one player, how are you planning on doing this with the entire league and kind of being able to put these GMs on blast whenever, you know, they come back and say this, that, or the other thing. Now you can say, Hey man, we have all the data. This is how it looks. Don't give me that anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is, is really from a team perspective, you're, you're not just taking, you know, I think the teams are going to be more focused on the players that they have at, on their current roster. And, mm-hmm. and what I'm trying to do is, is not every player is a great fit for that roster, regardless of what the general manager thinks, you know, there's, you know, I look at it very black and white, there's data. You can take that data and use it to the best of your ability to make a, a great informed decision. And if it works out, it works out and you look like a rock star and you're a superstar and whatnot. And if it doesn't work out well, you don't spend too much time worrying about it because at least you still feel confident. Okay. Well, I had all of the real time data in front of me. I'm making the best decision and I can't predict all of the other future indicators, the injuries, the, um, the available free agents that, that might come on the market. So that's, that's something that I leave open to the, to the team. I'm just providing all of the key, the key metrics, um, and, and providing a, a, a platform where you can catch that, that trajectory and, and see the trends and the volatility of the player and the teams and basically understand both sides from the player strengths and weaknesses and the team strengths and weaknesses and matching them together to find, you know, the X factor. <laughs> nice. Very nice. But how, how do you think – this will disrupt the market because this is something that if implemented again, from the team side, from the player side, it should disrupt the market. Where does this disrupt first? Is this on the agency side? Is this on the, the general, you know, the front office side where you can see the quickest, I don't want to maybe adoption of the product and, and the quickest utilization of the product, I guess. The quickest utilization is going to be in terms of, I think, a lot of the, the transactions between the athletes and the teams. I think that's, you know, our, our, our key component in this is basically giving the athletes a real-time market value. So mm-hmm. um, as, they, as they perform, as they develop, their value is either going to go in an upward trend or a downward trend. And, and we want to basically take this to the market and say, these are what the players are worth right now. And how far are the teams off in terms of their valuation versus what the players think they're valued at. And then carrying into the following season, seeing the volatility of the real time value going up and down and seeing if that player is being 
underutilized or if he's under overperforming on his contract. I mean, these are all the biggest disruptor in this is that we're taking the performance and financial data and integrating them together. And I feel like the NBA and all professional sports, they're businesses at the end of the day, you know, there's no, you know, teams can say, yeah, there's, there's loyalty. There's, we want to take care of our guys, but they'll, they'll drop a player to get a better player, a cheaper player um, to, to help them, you know, achieve what they're trying to achieve. So I think really helping the athletes, from the athlete perspective, understand what their value is and how they can build for the short-term success with finding a value that they're happy with, that the team is happy with, and give them a bargaining standpoint to say, going into it, hey, I have all the data for this. This is what I think I'm worth. Where are you guys at? Let's try to bridge the gap from there. And I so, think that, keep going. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I just think it's, it's awesome that now people are going to have this capability. Um, and, you know, I kind of made the joke before kind of putting GMs on blast, but everything's going to be out there for everyone to see. And I think transparency, especially in something like this front offices, you don't get much transparency, right? I'm a, I'm a big New York Giants fan. And I hate, I hate when Dave Gettleman gets in front of a microphone because he always looks like an idiot. But also he doesn't ever give explanations on why something was done or he's just like, yeah, we did it because we thought we had to. Okay. Well that doesn't, you know, the, a you're in the New York market, buddy, that that's not really going to fly here. There's a lot of people asking questions and a lot of people yelling, yeah. but I think it's nice to know. And, and just to go from a basketball perspective, pretty much anything the Knicks do can be put on blast because they always do the wrong thing. They're kind of like the Mets, the jets, you know, New York sports is a weird place, but it's always, it's, it's, it's necessary in a lot of situations to understand all right, is there at least a reason for this? Is there a reason Julius Randle gets three years and 60 million or wherever the heck that contract is worth? Because he doesn't play defense. Um, you know, he's, he's a good offensive player, but he doesn't play defense. So is there, is this something that like, how do you kind of figure that out? And I think through your product and through your service, people will be able to see that. And at least, you know, it's not just judgment on opinion. It's not just judgment on like the eyeball test, which I think is important, but it's obviously not the whole thing. And really understanding that, okay, here's the data behind, does this make a financially good contract? Or is this just something where a lot of emotion was involved? People got excited, people got outbid, and you just kind of had to go over and above for it. So I think it's really important for people to understand and see, especially in the NBA with, I mean, pretty much any sport, but especially in the NBA where the salary cap is what it is. And pretty much, you know, with these max contracts now, you know, Russell Westbrook, John Wall is going to be making 40 something million dollars a year. Okay, well, is he worth $40 million a year? Like, how does that really work? We kind of know John Wall, it's a weird situation. He got hurt two years in a row. Kind of just sucks. But Russell Westbrook, right? Now we're going to be able to see, like, we can all have opinions. Is he worth it? Is he not? Well, now we're going to have the data behind it of, is he worth it or is he not? Yeah, I mean, I, ultimately, you, you hit it on the nail. Basically, I want, this is not information that needs to be kept from, just just strictly to teams. Everyone needs to understand why the decisions are being made. And if it's, if it's like you mentioned, if they got starstruck in free agency or it's a lack of supply on, on name brand names and, and you're signing them to shorter contracts, why are they doing these things? It doesn't add up in terms of the data and what, how you're going to utilize these players in the lineup. Like 
you could look at the Knicks as a great example. You know, you have a, a log jam at, at the fr- in their front court, you know, and, and different players that, that don't mesh well together. And you're starting to see in the media, not all of the Knicks liked playing with Julius Randle because he's a ball hog. And, and so I'm trying to, to give an, a purview from the front office, the, the player representation side, and truly understand all of the different kinds of metrics that are going into, you know, cause when we were doing Anthony's, Anthony's pre-draft process, I mean, it was so methodical. I mean, we would have calls every night. We would so strategic in how we were doing it. And luckily it worked, it worked to our favor. He ended up getting drafted in the first round 24th overall to, to who we felt like was, the best possible situation for him to learn under Damian Lillard and learn under CJ McCollum. So we're trying to help both sides. We're trying to help the fans understand what the decisions are and, and if they, if those decisions make sense now from the team perspective and, and everyone's perspective, obviously the value of a player is all subjective. So I'm not trying to say that this is going to be, exactly what he should be making and this is exactly but at least it's a it's a baseline Mm -hmm. and 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 i have data to back it up with right and for the teams it's about making better decisions and not not jumping the gun and 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 uh going off of all you know i i definitely say you have to pass the eye test you have to trust your instincts and there's got to be a certain level of comfort if you're gonna bring on a player you have to see them, you know, you can't just rely on all the numbers and data. Right. So I think this is bridging the gap for the front office to really kind of have the, the, the front office, you know, looking at the, the physical side of it and then your analytics team and, and uh, over owners and whoever mm-hmm. else is involved in the decision-making process saying, okay, um, this data this data matches up and uh, the, the value for the value for this player matches up with what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very important. Again, it's not going to be the end all be all. Of course, that's just not how it works. Data is a piece of the puzzle. And if you have the best possible data, that piece puzzle piece probably gets a little bit bigger, but at the same time, again, you, as we said, you have the eye test, you have a lot of different things that, that are involved in, if this makes sense, um, I mean, personality, culture fit, a lot of that, those things, you know, yeah. you're saying with Anthony is very important. So, but how do you get all this data and then how do you put it together in a way that you think make, you think makes sense? Because I'm sure there's going to be iterations over time. You're going to get better data. You're going to get new data with what the best possible information you have now. How did you, I guess, create this algorithm without giving us too much of the secret sauce? So that way you could kind of put all this information out here and say, Hey, this is what I think. Right. So so obviously, so obviously you're w- with the data aspect, there's, there's ways that you can take the data and manipulate it into insights and, and ways that will become beneficial. So we're, we're taking, we're taking, you know, outcome based data along with more uh, player instinct type data in terms of performance and so we have a base level, which is used for the outcome side of it, right? Because when you're going into negotiations, you're not going to look at, oh, well, he went 12 feet, you know, to the baseline and, 
and uh, and this is what this is what this extra six million should be for because he goes he drives to the left you know sixty percent mm-hmm. of the time yeah. right so I've I've divided it up in terms of different types of of data and where they're going to be applied towards and for the financial aspect of it it's going to be more on an outcome base because you're look that's all you're looking at when you're going into the these types of decisions and then the uh, the player, the player side of it, the more intricate data is going to be used to back up those affirmations of what the contract value is. So you can say, well, where's, okay, why is he worth $21 million? Well, he's, he's worth this much because we've taken the team performance and the athlete performance. We've synchronized them together. We've seen the areas where he's going to flourish. We've seen the areas where he could potentially develop and you see the areas of weakness so that the team can either find reinforcements for that particular area or they can develop him as well and, and make it you know, a more cost-efficient solution. So we're definitely looking, you know, we, obviously that's something I think is going to evolve over time with the data aspect of it. Uh, I'm, there's so much wearable technology and, and different types of uh, companies out there that are, are looking at more of the optimization of, of the performance. And I definitely think there's something that could be incorporated with, with profit X on that. I think more in the, in the uh, evaluating player potential and looking at uh, player scouting, you know, I mean, teams are spending, you know, boatloads of money on, on young players and, and, and using them as assets to, to flip, to get, you know, more veteran quality players. I mean, look at uh, Oklahoma City. They flipped uh, Paul George into, what is it, like eight first-round draft picks? Yeah, something ridiculous like that. So, you know, I don't think they'll sign. I don't think they'll sign, you know, they'll draft all eight picks in the span of the next three or four years, but they'll definitely try to be aggressive and, and try to identify areas where they can, they can um, you know, enhance their team mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and be more competitive. So – yeah, I mean, I def, I think with Profit X, it's it's definitely as the game evolves. I think we're gonna evolve as well, you know, as different trends. But we're really looking at any type of situation that's gonna affect either the athlete's overall career trajectory or the team, the team operation side of it, and how that uh, becomes transparent in terms of the winning aspect of it. So. We're going to continue. We have a R&D team as we build out the rest of the indexes for FIFA and NFL. We're going to continue to try to enhance all of these, these aspects of it, particularly the data and how we can make it more fine-tuned with the financial side of it and using more in-depth data. And also from the uh, – sorry, I lost my train of thought. But, yeah, um, you're good. You're good. Man. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And I think, again, so we've gone over a lot of the, the athlete and the team side, but I think one thing you've even expressed to me, your favorite part of it is the fan aspect of it. So tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously we understand the team indice, which is, okay, how does it, you know, what does your team look like? How does it work? What is it under the salary cap? How does all these players fit together? We understand the athlete side. So it's just more of an athlete specific. This is what they do. This is how much they should get paid versus how much they get paid, that kind of stuff. What exactly is the fan side of it going to look like? And how do you think this is going to add just that extra layer to get 
not just teams and athletes enjoying and, you know, agents, you know, like your former self, but also people like me to kind of just check in and be like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. This is what's going on. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, like you and I discussed last time, I think, you know, the way I feel about the fans is that the, the fans are the biggest part of this, this puzzle. You know, they, they're the biggest stakeholder in the ecosystem. They drive everything. And, you know, on top of me trying to create these, these standards for these teams to abide by and, and use it as a, as a baseline to show if, if they're being competent or not in, in their decision-making process, I also want to empower the fans. And I want them to be able to provide input in situations into certain transactions that have happened, voice their approval or disapproval, create different types of, you know, roster management situations, um, trade scenarios that they, you know, I really wanted to make it an open forum where the fans can show their approval, disapproval, and be able to play around with different models and metrics to create situations that they feel like will enhance their team that they love to support and that they love, they love to cheer for. And they're sick and tired of waiting for the team to turn it around because they can't hire the right guys to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where I feel like the sports just really underestimate the, the fan aspect of it. And, and the, the owners and front offices, you know, I think are going to have this, have this data in front of them to see what the current pulse is on their organization, you know, and there's a movie called, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's called draft day um, with Kevin Cosner. I've heard of that it's not the best movie. It's around. not, it's, it's not a great movie, but there's a, there's a scene in there that I, I find strikingly funny with it. And it's, it's basically when the, one of the, the GMs has traded away the first, the first pick of the NFL draft. And basically all the fans come to the training facility and they're like, you know, having signs up fire, Tom, fire, Tom, and all of this. And now I don't think teams, I don't think fans go to that extreme. Obviously there's a Hollywood aspect to it, but I'm sure there's plenty of fans that feel that same way. And, and, you know, after a, a, a favorite player has been traded or, or uh, a, a contract has been given out to a certain player that is just, or Timothy Mozgov, for example, everyone, everyone in their right mind knows that that's a insane, absurd deal that was given out. And it's still, you know, discussed as one of the worst contracts in the history of, of the NBA. So um, I want to give the fans shout out to shout out to his agent, by the way, I mean, yeah, good for him. Yeah. I'm all for the players making money, man. So yeah, I think yeah, it's awesome, absolutely. but I agree. Not maybe not the best deal Magic Johnson and Rob Polinka could have put together. I, I agree. And, and so I, I really just want to give the fans. So I, I'm, I haven't really thought about the, my team is basically working on a visual concept for it, but basically what we're going to do, we're going to take all of the features that we've created and then basically make it into a fan friendly, uh, you know, input type uh, feature that the fans can play around with different situations and really submit feedback and, and approval or disapproval and, and comments on, on various things throughout the, the athlete side of it and the, and the player side of it. 
and I think it's I think it's awesome, man. I, I just think just the way you've been able to conceptualize this and really coming. It's not like you're just some tech guy that was like, this is a good idea. I mean, you you did it. You were in the forefront. You were on the front lines. You know how this agency, you know, team deal, you know, how you know how all of this works. And now you've come up with a way that will be able to supplement both sides. So it's not like you're playing favorites, but you'll be able to supplement both sides and help them with more information, give them better data so that these teams can construct better rosters and these athletes can get better deals from the correct teams. Because obviously every athlete is just looking for the most amount of money in most situations. And again, I'm all for it. Timothy Mozgov got what, like $70 million or something like that? Yeah, 80 mil, I think. Good for him, man. I love it. And I hope (laughs) him and his family and his grandkids and everyone's happy for the rest of their lives. But on the Lakers side, it doesn't look so great. That was like, that was the Lakers, right? They got, that was the Lakers, yep. yeah. and so it doesn't make sense. So as a Lakers fan, you can be like, what the heck are we doing? I mean, another one, uh, Bismack Biombo, same thing. One incredible playoff run and he got a lot of money. Got I don't think he like barely even plays anymore, but again, shout out to him and his family and they're going to be good for the rest of their lives. So I think it's great that you've been able to put this together to help both sides. It's not like you're trying to take money out of the players' hands. You're just trying to put them in better situations. It's not like you're trying to, again, as I jokingly put it before, put these GM, GMs on blast, but giving them more and better information to utilize when they are making these ideas so their fans can be happier. And then again, the fan aspect of it too, you're now giving the fans this opportunity to kind of almost play GM a little bit and almost kind of give them this opportunity. Well, if I was able to do it, how good would I be? Because everyone thinks, you know, as I said before, yeah. I hate when Dave Gettleman gets up in front, I think I could do it better until I do it. And then I probably look like an idiot. Right. So, I mean, it's always funny when you kind of, you always think and you hope, but at the same time, it's not quite as easy as you, you know, me sitting on my couch eating potato chips, probably not as easy as I think it is. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you in, in that, in that regard. I think, I think there's a, I think there's a balance. Obviously I think the fans are more educated than, than we give them credit for. And I think they can, I think they'll be able to, to recognize not only with the platform in front of them, but just instinctly, mm-hmm. you know, being able to know, Hey, that's not a good deal for our team. It's not a good fit. You know, obviously, when you watch a team the whole season, like I, I watched the Dallas Mavericks all season. So, like, you know, I can, I can really, like, break it down for you and say, hey, this would be a good pickup for these guys. And, and so I definitely think the fans are going to have – yeah, I think, you know, playing GM, I guess, is, is a good way to put it. You're putting them in the shoes to, to educate themselves. And even if they want to pursue – you know, even if for younger kids, that's, that's a route they want to go – you know, this is the, this is the perfect type of, of platform to really understand the data analytics side, which is becoming a, a really huge and prevalent part of, of, uh, you know, sports all, now. Yeah, all major sports. I mean, baseball kind of, it started in baseball, but I mean, that's where you have the biggest sample size and then it kind of trickled down and now it's pretty much everywhere. Um, in sports and professional sports, which is important because again, it's not the whole puzzle, but it's a giant piece that if you utilize it correctly, along with those other pieces, you'll get the best possible picture. You know, that, that's how I think about it. And that's why I hate, you know, baseball is my favorite sport, but it's so frustrating just like, because they only pay attention to analytics. Sometimes it's like, guys, like there's so much other things. I know if you bunt, it's not good, but not every situation is created equally. Not every yeah. pitcher, or every third baseman, none of this is created equally. So if you just look at the numbers, everything is created equally in most of those cases when you do look at those analytics. So you have to understand when and where and how, because you see it happen specifically in baseball. In the playoffs, everything's kind of thrown out the window. So like you will bunt down the third baseline if you're Joey Gallo, if necessary. 
you could have done that four or five times during the season. You would have got those five hits, and then you probably would have got a couple more because the shift, you know, that, that's a whole other conversation. I know you're a basketball <laughs> guy. I'm kind of ranting a little bit right now. No, but no, what, um, what's the North Star for the business? I mean, I, an easy one I'm assuming is you guys have the best data and you're working with all the teams and all the leagues in the, in the world. But, like, how are you – like what's that trajectory and what's that projection that you're really right now shooting for? That's, I guess like the next, not maybe the next goal, but the foreseeable future that you think is very obtainable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, listen, I mean, there, there's like, like we discussed before, there's a lot of, there's a lot of performance performance data companies out there. And, and I feel like, the balance of, of the ecosystem right now is heavily favored in, for the teams. And because they're keeping all of this, this information um, at their disposal to their advantage, you know, amongst their competitors within their respective leagues. And I don't feel like that's how it should work. So, um, you know, from my perspective, I definitely, I definitely feel like there's going to be some ruffling of the feathers with this. So I'm not, I don't need any type of customer to uh, validate it or, or say that this is, this is the right product for the league or whatnot. This is, this is information that needs to be shared with everyone. And so my, my kind of North star with this is obviously I want to, I want to, help the athletes first and foremost. I want to start seeing better deals being made and I want to start seeing better decisions being made by the, by the teams. So I'm really going to go after, I'm really going to try to push this to a lot of the the professional clubs um, in all sports so that um, I think that's the biggest benefit for the team right off of the bat. And then, so we ideally like to get probably three to five teams signed up um as as initial customers and and see what the progress is and track the trajectory of of the decisions being made and using that data as as case studies to further validate our our science behind behind everything now obviously we're looking at free agency as a big as a big uh area to really kind of validate our product as well and really see what the what the different differential between the the player and the teams uh, valuations are and, and understanding it and starting to see see the decisions being made and start to track the data as a result of that. So I think that's that's a big aspect of what we're going to focus on for the first for the first year while while we get teams signed up and and get them on board and and really they I want to show them the value of this and then I also want to have the player empowerment side of it. I want to I want to see the athletes start to take control of their you know, you mentioned athletes are just going to go for the money, but that's not smart money all the time, right? You could go to a situation and it could not be a fit for you. And you could be sitting, sitting on the bench for three of those seasons. And then your next contract, you're totally affecting that. I want the athletes to see the long-term picture and I want them to see all of the best options at each critical juncture Mm -hmm. of their career. And so I really want to see that aspect of it and the players start to just adopt it. And even if, even if it's not, even if it's not them negotiating their own contracts or, 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 uh, or uh, using it for their performance development in the off season or whatever, I want, I want the agencies to at least start adopting this and, and really start pushing this 
so that they can make better decisions for their clients as well. Cause I think there, if, if they have, if the athletes are listening to the agents, then that's, that's who we need to target. So I'm trying to, I, I would ideally like to, you know, have a good mix of, of teams and, and athletes on board. And I also, I just want to have standards created. I think that's what the, the overall uh, mission of, of this is. And, and I want people to start adopting it and naturally start to validate it and say, Hey, this may not be exactly on point with the, the actualities of it, but damn, it was, it was pretty close, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, so, exactly. You're not going to probably get a hundred percent, but again, if you can get into that 90%, 95, 98 percentile, I think that's going to help a lot of people make and save and create better choices, which I think is the most important part. Agreed. And, and, and going back to the fans, I think the fans are, I, you know, I, no one should be wasting their money and, and, you know, when players aren't playing and, and going, understanding a good matchup to go and watch good basketball and just little, little things that are going to really enhance the experience for the fans and make them feel like they're even closer to their clubs. And I'm going to take that fan data and I'm going to integrate it into the team and athlete indexes so that they have everything at their disposal. They can see if we're making a potential decision um, that gets released through the media, potential trade, it's going to be first out on the fan decks and the fans are going to, you know, either voice their voice, their support for it or force it to pleasure. And, and then the team has to make the decision from there, you know, Mm -hmm with all the variables, uh, in front of them. So I love it. So yeah, I think the North star is just, you know, bringing the entire, uh, entire ecosystem with all of the key players, you know, into, into the same spectrum and, and revolving off relying on each other to get the best possible outcomes for everyone. Well, I'm excited for it, man. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Let's see if I can get your last name, Josh Eberham. Yes, sir. Killer. Josh Abraham, CEO and founder of Profit XAI, helping out all these sports, all these athletes. Really appreciate your time today, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Josh. As I said, super cool how he's doing it. You know, I think the agency business is definitely ripe for some disruption. And the way he is creating this product and this service that will help fans, will help teams, will help athletes, will help agents. I think it's just an all-around slam dunk. So I'm very excited for him to get going with that. So please make sure to follow Josh on all of his socials. Everything will be in the show notes. Please make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you're listening. That would be very, very helpful for getting these stories out to more people. And thank you so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day. Yes.